All right, well, let's take a Bible and uh, turn to Romans chapter 8. I, I've been preaching all the way through the book of Romans just to get to chapter 8. This is one incredible chapter and really takes everything that Paul has said up to this point and solidifies it, pulls it together, and helps us see a picture of ourselves and a picture of what Christ has done for us and how that weaves itself into our everyday lives. Now, I, I want to do a little contrast here because, you know, we, we get that Paul has talked about the fact that we were, maybe we were rebellious sinners, maybe you were a respectable sinner or religious sinner, but we we're all sinners and fallen short of God's glory. And so Jesus came into the world so that you and I might experience the forgiveness of our sins and that we might experience newness of life. And so the question then is, how does this newness of life work itself out? Uh, because most of us, um, when we came to faith in Christ, we brought into that relationship a lot of woundedness. Now, your woundedness can come in multiple different ways. It might be something as simple as something somebody said to you that deeply wounded you. Maybe you felt rejected by someone, by a parent. Um, you know, for me, you know, when my dad left, there was that sense of rejection. Uh, maybe some of your woundedness goes much deeper than that. It might be that you were abused, maybe physically, sexually, mentally. I just went out, and I'm back. Uh, deep woundedness. It, it might be that you just had thoughts about yourself, deep-seated beliefs that you were never really enough. Maybe you had this fear, this deep underlying fear that you were unlovable uh, because the, of the way somebody treated you. Uh, in your past, maybe uh, your past sins, you just keep dragging them around and, and you can't seem to offload those things and you can't seem to forgive yourself and you're not sure that God's forgiven you and, or how all that works out when it comes to sin and you're always beating yourself up and maybe the belief is that you're just not worthy, okay? I'm just not worthy of God's love. I'm not worthy of God's forgiveness. I'm not worthy of God's acceptance. So I have this backpack up here because this is what we do throughout the course of our lives is we just keep stuffing things into this backpack. It's our woundedness. It's our thoughts, uh, our feelings. It's all the things that people said to us, they've done to us. And so over time, we just continue to carry this backpack with us throughout the course of our lives. And then we gave our heart and our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we wondered why this backpack didn't all of a sudden just magically drop off of us. We found that, yes, uh, Jesus has forgiven us of sin, but offloading all this woundedness, that's a different story. Is, is Jesus' death on the cross capable of offloading all of this deep-seated woundedness, or is that for another time, another day? There are many people who live their entire lives, their Christian lives, thinking, well, you know, all that happens when you get to heaven. Well, that's what Satan would have you to believe, but that simply is not true. The cross of Calvary is not only sufficient to forgive our sins, but it's also sufficient for us to offload all of this stuff that we keep carrying around us. And by the way, most of these thoughts and these feelings and these mindsets that we have developed early in childhood, and you've been carrying them a long, long time. In fact, you've been carrying them so long, you have developed neural pathways in your thought processes that the Bible would call the flesh. And those neural pathways are default mechanisms you go to in order to try to heal yourself of your woundedness. 
and we call these coping mechanisms, or sometimes people call them uh, emotional pain management. Uh, whatever you want to term it, we look for all kinds of ways to offload. We, we get involved in things like addictions, and it might be sleeping or smoking or you know some kind of a binge watching of TV, an eating disorder. There are a thousand ways that we can try to offload this stuff. And when we find out we can't, we have to cope somehow. So we just develop some kind of self-defeating coping mechanism that now begins to overtake and to rule our thought processes. And more importantly, it begins to rule our feelings. And so um, we want to come to the cross and think of it in terms like this. And that is mind renewal. All right, mind renewal. How do I renew my mind, which Paul says in Romans 12, too, is the key to transforming my life. How do I renew my mind in a way that offloads all of this woundedness so that I can take hold of what Jesus has accomplished through the cross at Calvary that enables me to move forward in my life? Because the lies that we tell ourselves in, um, you know, when we live uh, in woundedness is I'm shameful, I'm guilty, I'm superficial, I'm imperfect, I'm less than others, I am unacceptable. And then God comes along and says, no, 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 you are redeemed and you are righteous and you are holy in my sight. And you say, but Lord, I don't feel that way. I'm not experiencing that in my life. All I know is what I keep carrying around with me. So how do I take what you say is truth and confront the lie-based thinking that I've developed my flesh around so that I can offload that which keeps pulling me, pulling me backwards and pulling me, me down? So I want to talk about the the Spirit's authority in your life, because God has given you an authority figure in your life, and chapter 8 of Romans is all about the Holy Spirit. Remember chapter 7, Paul used the term I about 30 times, and, or 18 times, and now in chapter 8, he's going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, and I want to talk about the authority of the Holy Spirit, how he's given you authority to offload the woundedness to offload the lie-based thinking so that you can put on truth and learn how to live without carrying your own personal backpack. So uh, when you review what God says about you, whether you feel it or not, you are either going to be emotion-driven in life or you're going to be mind-driven, truth-driven. You're either going to be, be listening to the lies of the enemy and caught up in the flesh and be ruled by your emotions. And by the way, your emotions are irrational. Your mind is rational. Your emotions are fickle. They're all over the map. Uh, they can feel one way one moment and feel quite the opposite another moment. They are not a reliable basis for living is what the Bible teaches us. So how do we learn to override what my emotions are telling me? So if I have an event that happens to me that created woundedness, with that event comes feelings, and with those feelings come outcome. Because we tend to be feeling driven, we just like skip over the middle part here, which is cognitive, which is your mind. And so we don't perceive what's happening to us on the basis of what is rational thought. We tend to perceive what has happened to us on the basis of how we feel. So we become felt driven and emotion driven. And for most of us, 
Um, that is the dominant part of our life. And your life, listen, your life is always, always, always moving in the direction of your most dominant thoughts. So if I don't have dominant thoughts that are truth-based and driving my life, then I'll allow my emotions that is probably lie-based to drive my life, and I will not experience the freedom that Jesus came for you and I to experience. So the contrast that Paul makes in the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8 is, again, it's flesh-driven versus spirit-driven or um, emotionally driven as opposed to truth-driven. I think the first step to helping you acquiesce the um, authority of the Holy Spirit in your life is to review every single day the gospel to yourself. Now remember, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power to save, the power to heal, and the power to deliver. And so if the Spirit, He wants to heal you of your woundedness. He wants to offload that which you've been carrying around. He wants to deliver you from the mindset that this has constructed in your thought processes that affects your feelings, which affects your actions, and he has the power and the authority. The Spirit has the power and the authority to do that. But you have an enemy that's warring against you. He doesn't want you offloading anything. He knows he cannot have your soul, but he can make your life so miserable that you feel like you're living hell on earth. And you, then life just becomes, well, you know, I'm just going to get through life, and one day it'll all be over with, and I'll be gone, and I'll be in heaven, and it'll all be perfect, and it'll all be wonderful. But in the meantime, I'm just going to, you know, like kind of just trudge along and, and make it the best I can. That is not the life that Christ came to give to us. That's not the life that the Bible describes that Jesus came to offload onto us. So what is the gospel? The gospel, first of all, Jesus died for me, therefore, I am justified. We've used this word justified because Paul's used it so much. Remember, it is a legal term. God's the judge. He's already laid down the gavel and says, because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, I declare you not guilty. I'm forgiving you of your sins, past, present, and future. I'm clothing you in the righteousness of Jesus, so when I look at you, I see Christ, I see no one else. I'm giving you a measure of faith that will enable you to come to Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life and to walk day by day in the empowerment and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God himself. When you died, that's Romans 6, when you died, when Christ died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected into newness of life. The old man is gone. The new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. That's what the Bible says. And in addition to that, I have transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness that is ruled and reigned by Satan and all of his minions into the kingdom of my beloved son, who, which is rule and reign by the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the very name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the truth that God says about you. Now, Paul says on the basis of all of that, notice how he begins verse one of chapter eight, therefore, in light of all of that, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Circle the word no. 
No, none, nada, not today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. There is no condemnation. Now, most Christians tend to live their lives filled with condemnation, right? Because of two traps, a performance trap and a pretending trap. A performance trap is many people spend their entire lives trying to earn what God is freely giving. I'm trying to earn God's love. I'm trying to earn God's acceptance. I'm trying to be good enough, and I'm trying to get myself into a position that, that God will love me enough to actually receive me into his presence. And so I have to maintain this standard. And, and if I don't maintain this standard, well, God's going to be disappointed in me. God's going to be mad at me. If something bad happens, I assume that's God getting back at me. Like, you know what? You didn't live up to the measure standard and you didn't measure up. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to beat you down a little bit so that you'll learn a lesson. And you're always wondering, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? And if somebody, you know, something bad happens, is this from God? What this leads to is a life that is filled with anxiety and exhaustion. And this is the way many believers live because they're still carrying around this backpack of woundedness. And they're thinking, well, if I was truly saved, I would, I would have offloaded that or God would have offloaded that off of me a long, long time ago. And close on the heels is the pretending trap. So because we know that what's going on inside of us is not matching up with what we want people to see on the outside of us, we pretend everything's great, don't we? And so Christians are horrible at this because, you know, people ask, how are you doing? Oh, everything's fine, wonderful, couldn't be better, couldn't be great. You know, life is wonderful. But inside you know that you're an absolute wreck, that things aren't wonderful and your emotions are a wreck and you're all over the map with God and with people and relationships and you've got all this woundedness and you've tried to offload it, you can't offload it. And so you just, uh, rather than being honest about it, you just begin to suppress it, you begin to push it down, you begin to fill your life with coping mechanisms to help you forget about and maybe get through another day. And so in Romans chapter 7, remember what Paul said in, in honesty, he said, when I think about what's going on inside of me, I am a wretched man. I, I am not doing well. I, I, I'm not doing the things I want to do, and I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. But notice what he said. He says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our, our Lord. And so Paul, in essence, says, hey, because of what's happening in here, I don't know how much condemnation I'm about to receive from God, but... Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because I'm in Christ, there is no condemnation coming my way. It's gone. It's done. It's over with now and for forever. Now, the term combination is a legal term, again, that means you owe something, right? You owe a debt. And you owe a debt that you can't pay and so this is the condemnation that God had over us, the wrath of God that was hanging over us because of our sin, right? We could not pay God back for our sin. We couldn't make up for our sin. We couldn't make up for our rebellion. There's nothing we could give God. You can't give him Bitcoin or anything else that's going to make payment for your sin. So what did God do? God made the payment for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so for those who are in Christ, that debt no longer exists. 
Because the debt was paid by whom? In full. Jesus. He paid. So if God were to hold us accountable again for the debt that Christ has already paid on our behalf, that would be illegal, right? We call that double jeopardy. We're making payment twice for the same sin. That is not God's economy. God, through Christ, forgave us of how many sins? Past, present, future, now, therefore, in Christ, there is no condemnation. You ought to celebrate that. And here's why. Because the simple question is, when Jesus, listen, when Jesus died on the cross, how many sins did he die for? All of them. Were your sins in the past or in the future? All of them in the future. So if you took care of all your future sins, why do you think there would be any condemnation of God hanging over you? And so he paid for them all in advance. That means he's already atoned for our sins, even the ones we have not committed yet, that Jesus wiped them out personally, and all the condemnation that is against us. Now, why am I telling you this? Because this is what frees you from the performance trap and the pretending trap. All right, because this is the one thing that Satan loves to leverage against you, condemnation. In fact, those of us who are not under condemnation oftentimes live as though we are under condemnation for one of three reasons. Number one is that some of you condemn yourself, right? You're constantly condemning yourself because you have a tender conscience and you understand very clearly what's going on inside of you and all your faults and all your flaws and all your failures and your, con- your, your, your um, uh, conscience is constantly thinking about your shortcomings and bringing them up. And you say something like, you know what, honestly, I know God's forgiven me, but I just cannot forgive myself. Now that sounds real holy, but it's not. And here's why. When Jesus was dying on the cross for your sins, what is one of the things that he said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Where were all of our sins in the future? That was a prayer that Jesus was praying over all of us, and it is a prayer that he answered himself by dying for us, by taking our place and eradicating, taking our sin and casting it as far as the east is from the west, plunging it beneath the sea of forgetfulness. So my question to you is simply this, at what point did you climb above the organizational chart of forgiveness over Jesus? Look, if he's forgiven you of all your sins, it might sound holy to say, well, but I just can't forgive myself. Why would you put yourself above Christ? If he's forgiven, it's not a question of whether you forgive yourself. It's a question of whether or not you accept what he has done on your behalf. And when you do, and you understand the concept, there's no condemnation here. Jesus isn't holding anything over me. He's not holding anything over my head. He's not threatening me with punishment, and he's not threatening me with other things to get me in alignment. Here's the second one is some of you are like an archaeologist, right? Um, so all your sins, past, present, and future, have been buried with whom? With Christ. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected. So all your sins, past, present, future, were buried with, with Christ. But like an archaeologist, you run around and keep digging them back up. And the reason you keep digging them back up is because people, maybe family members, keep digging them back up for you. 
hey, do you remember the time? <laughs> do you remember when? And they bring back up all the old life, and everybody you know, has a great laugh about it. But then you feel ashamed, you feel guilt all over again, you, you feel this sense of condemnation hanging over you, and sometimes people bring up the past, like in marriage, you get in an argument with your spouse, you bring up the past because it's ammunition that you're going to use against your spouse in order to beat them at the argument. But what does 1 Corinthians chapter 3 say? Love keeps no record of wrongs, Right? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Does Jesus have a record of your wrongs? You better believe he does. But you know what he did with that record? According to Colossians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 15, he took that record of wrongs, what he called that certificate of debt, and he nailed it to the cross, and he marked it through his blood paid in full. So stop being an archaeologist. Stop bringing up this stuff from your past. It is past. You can learn from your past. You can, and I'll teach you how to reframe your past, which is very important, so that it's not beating you down. It's not keeping you in, in this, under this cloud of condemnation, but it enables you to offload the past, the woundedness that you keep carrying around that's infiltrating itself in your thought processes and in your emotions that it directly affects what you do. All right, so here's the next one. through demonic attack. Remember what I said last week? Everything God creates, Satan counterfeits. God created conviction. Satan counterfeited with condemnation. Let me give you the, di the difference between the two, and you place on your outline... Listen, condemnation is what unholy spirits use to condemn us. It's always in broad generality in order to drive us away from God. Broad generality like you're a horrible person, you're worthless, you're unworthy, you're unlovable, all those kinds of things. God, on the other hand, through his Holy Spirit brings conviction that's very specific in order to lead me back to God. And so, yes, God deals with sin in our lives, even though we're saved, but the Spirit of God doesn't say, Greg, you're a worthless, horrible person. He would say, Greg, you just lied. Why are you lying? And so God uses conviction through his Spirit in order to confront me, to correct me, or to instruct me, not as a whip to beat me. Right. He's wanting me to come back in alignment with, with the Father. Because remember, everybody has their feet on a pathway that leads, has a destination. And so if I have my feet on the pathway of the flesh, that leads me somewhere. If I have my feet on the pathway of the Spirit, that leads me somewhere totally different. God wants to keep my feet on the path with the Spirit in alignment, learning to walk with the Spirit so that I will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Remember, Galatians chapter 5. So God's spirit convicts while Satan only condemns. And so here's the good news about Satan. Here's how you know he's speaking to you. How many of you play poker? All right, some honest people here. The rest of you are lying, but that's okay. Uh, you say, if you play poker, you don't want what's called a poker tell. And what that means is you get this incredible hand, and there, there's a facial expression or something that's your tell that lets everybody else know that, man, you got an incredible hand. 
right? So you're all excited because you're going to, you know, like really cash in and uh, everybody just folds and says, well, I'm out, right? And then just infuriates you. <laughs> Satan has a poker tail and his poker tail is this. In fact, you'll find it in the Garden of Eden. He said to Adam and Eve, um, he comes to them as, as you know, he, he, he has no power, he has no authority over them unless they give him some. And he comes to them and he says, you know what? If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. Now, he gave his tell. When he came to Jesus in the, in the wilderness to tempt him, he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to be turned into bread. His poker tell is the personal pronoun in the plural, you. He always uses you. He will say things to you like, you are worthless. You are a failure. You got exactly what you deserved. You are, you are, you just never change. You are hopeless. You are disgusting. You ought to kill yourself. You ought to just take your life. And so he uses the word you because when we talk to ourselves, we don't use you, we use I. I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. I, I'm unlovable. I, I should have never done that, right? So his poker tell is you. So one of the ways you discern whether or not something is coming from your enemy to condemn you is that he's going to use you. You this, you that, you never, you always. Those are the things that are dead giveaway that it's Satan who is, who is speaking to you rather than the Spirit of God who is bringing conviction. Listen, one of the things that Jesus did not do in the wilderness temptation, he didn't debate with Satan. He just simply confronted his lie with truth. Well, you can come to me if you are the Son of God. I'm not going to debate you about that. But let me tell you what God says. And this is truth that confronts the lie because a lie cannot stand against the truth. So the reason why condemnation versus conviction is so important is because it's going to put you on one of two pathways that he describes here. Let's pick up in verse 1 again. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me, set me free from the law of the sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, that is, it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son and the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature or the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he says, listen, if you choose to live under condemnation, you put your feet on a path that's going to lead you to nothing but a sense of failure and this overwhelming sense of condemnation in your life. Now, when Paul's talking about God's laws, He's speaking about what never changes, right? God's laws, his principles, his teaching, the word of God. We're no longer under the ceremonial laws, uh, the judicial laws of the Old Testament. That was all fulfilled in Christ. We are under the moral law, like the Ten Commandments is the moral law. In fact, every commandment falls under one of the Ten Commandments. The teachings, the principles of God's word, and they're always true. They're never wrong because God always gets it right the first time. So when culture comes along and says, well, but I don't believe that. Culture, culture doesn't say that is true. Well, then culture's wrong. I'm just sorry. If you come and you want to confront God's word and say, well, I just believe God got that one wrong. You can disagree with God all you want, but you're dead wrong. 
God, listen, God never adjusts himself to us. We are to adjust ourselves to him. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God's beloved son. There are two cultures, the culture of hell, the culture of heaven. And God's word, listen, Jesus is the king over his kingdom. As, as citizens of his kingdom, he's given us a rule book, a, a helpmate, so to speak, through the word of God to instruct us on how kingdom citizens are to conduct themselves as members of God's kingdom. And this is what we follow. And so the problem is, Paul says, living under the law is, is good, but we have this proclivity towards rebellion, right? It's called the flesh. Remember Paul said earlier, man, the law just arouses me. I, it just makes me want to break the law. I, I, you tell me not to do it, I just want it. So here's what the law bears out. Some of you are rule breakers and some of you are rule keepers. How many of you are rule breakers? You admit that? Thank you very much. Join my team. All right, so my youngest daughter was a rule breaker. And uh, man, when she's a teenager, if, if you confronted her, hey, uh, this is the rule, and you're expected to follow it. And she would say always, what if I don't? What if I don't? She wanted to weigh in the balance whether or not her rebellion uh, was worth it or not. And most times, in her mind, it was. Now, some of you are rule keepers. That is, I give you a rule, you're going to keep it. Not only are you going to keep the rule, you're going to enforce that rule on everybody else. Right? It's like, man, I can't stand it when people don't keep the rules. Right? My wife is a rule keeper. It drives her crazy when people aren't keeping the rules. And I'm thinking to myself, but man, you know, the rule, I'm just thinking, how can I break that rule? I, I don't, I don't, how, how do I skirt my way around that rule? And some of you grew up in a household where... Part of your family were rule keepers. Part of your family were rule breakers. And so here's the deal what Paul says. Whether you're a rule breaker, you're just going to break it because you can. Or you're a rule keeper, you rule keepers, you try to keep the law, but you can't. And because you can't, it frustrates the daylights out of you. Which opens you up for condemnation from the evil one. Right? See, I told you you couldn't keep God's stuff, man. God's so disappointed in you. So disappointed in you. Remember those promises you made him so many times? You, you weren't going to do this again. You were, were going to offload this, and you tried, and it didn't work. And, and so we just feel all this sense of condemnation on us. And some of you may grew up in a, grew up in a very law-based, legalistic kind of household, and and, uh, man, you were a lawbreaker. Whether you're a lawbreaker or a rule keeper, you were just frustrated at the end of the day. And what happens to most kids when they get out of the house? Man, if they're rule breakers, they're going to break every rule they got, every rule you gave them. Man, when they get to college, it's like, whoo, out from under that. I'm going to party. I'm going to drink my brains out and have as much sex as I can. I, I mean, I'm just going to break every rule mom and dad ever gave me. And the rule keepers are like, they're going to try to keep the rules for a while, but then things are just not going to kind of go real well, and they're going to maybe fall in the wrong crowd and end up in rebellious spirit, and, and it just all comes crumbling down around us. And that's why a lot of times kids who go off out of Christian homes, they go off to college, and they get you know, big time into rebellion. They feel the heaping condemnation of the evil one against them, and they come to the conclusion, this is why I no longer believe in organized religion. It's too oppressive. That's one pathway. The second pathway, he says, we can live under the spirit that leads to Jesus and freedom. 
And so what's God's standard? God's standard's not good, it's perfect, <laughs> right? And there's, there is an impossibility for you to perfectly keep God's law, whether it's in your mind, heart, words, or your deeds. So if God has this impossible standard, then God alone is the only one who can meet that standard. And that's why Jesus came. Notice what he says. He came in the likeness of human flesh. I mean, Jesus looked like us. He lived like us. He suffered like us. He was the second Adam. He didn't come with a sin nature like you and I did. And so Jesus never sinned. He kept the law perfectly because he was perfect. And because he was perfect, you know, you've heard people say, well, nobody is perfect. Well, there is one person who was perfect, and his name was Jesus. And those who were imperfect crucified him because they didn't like the fact that he was perfect. And it made them look bad, called the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the religious elites of his day and time. And so Jesus came to fulfill the law, and he kept the law perfectly, and he, he took our place at Calvary. He died the death we should have died in our place so that through him he could make this great exchange. Jesus took your place, you took his place, and so the great exchange is simply this. He got the condemnation, we got the salvation, he got the damnation, we got the forgiveness, he got the separation, we got the reconciliation, he got the death, we get the life. Why is this so important? Because the difference between the first path and the second path is the difference between rule-keeping and relationship. You want to offload this pack? Stop living your life trying to keep all the rules, because you can't. And if you think somehow that's going to make God love you more, accept you more, be in greater standing with him... You are utterly going to fail, and you have opened yourself wide, wide open for the condemnation of the evil one. And this is the way a lot of people ultimately live their lives. So Jesus comes and lives perfectly, takes away our sin, gives us his righteousness, sends the Holy Spirit to walk this path with us so that we can learn how to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, thus having the mind of Christ, the character of Christ, thus living the life of Christ. And therefore, that, my friend, that's what gives you authority over the evil one. He has no authority unless you grant it to him. When he comes with condemnation, you better have a response based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, not your track record, because by and large, our track record is horrible. Amen? Here's the second one. The Holy Spirit now lives in you. Therefore, I am sanctified. I am being conformed into the image of Christ. And so he says, those who live according to, in verse 5, the sinful nature, have their minds set on what nature desires. But those who live according to the Spirit, have their minds set on the, what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit 
who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will, will live. So here's what, here's what Paul is simply saying, is that God has given to us a power source that we did not have on our own. How many of you have ever used jumper cables, right? Your battery's dead. Somebody comes up. Uh, they've got, you know, their, their battery's alive. It's full of power. They use jumper cables. They put the positive, the positive, negative, negative on their battery, your battery, and your car starts. Why? Because the dead battery is drawing life from the power battery, right? So this is exactly what God has done. God knows that without the Holy Spirit, you and I can do nothing on our own. This is why Jesus said to his own disciples, do not go into ministry until you have been first indwelt by, filled by the Spirit of God. He is your power source. So what we want to learn together is how do we take the power source of the Holy Spirit and activate it in our lives. And here's why I'm saying this is because the Bible never says that when you walk in the Spirit, you will no longer have any desires of the flesh. It says if you learn how to walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You're always going to have the desires of the flesh. They're never going to go away this side of heaven. Therefore, you need to learn how to activate the authority of the Spirit to have victory over those desires rather than allowing them to have victory over you. All right, so this is what we're going to learn together in the next couple of weeks because these cravings, these fleshly desires, um, you know, he doesn't kill those desires. They're still there. Like if my flesh like desires and craves drugs, well, if I've been a drug addict for 10 years, of course it's going to continue to, to crave. Uh, and my body's going to continue to crave after drugs. Even after I got saved, I still crave those things because I still had those fleshly desires. I still had those neural pathways in my mind that affected my, my um, emotions, that affected my physical body. So the point is this. You have to learn how to exercise the authority of the Spirit regardless of how you might be feeling and regardless how strong the pull of your flesh might be. Now, it will get easier over time, but at first, it's going to take some effort. It's going to take some habits that you've got to put in place in your life. Remember, here's, here's why we struggle with this. God made us for perfection. We long for perfection. When God created the heavens and the earth, he said, it's good. When he created Adam and Eve and put him in the Garden of Eden, he says, it is very good. But then the world got all messed up. We don't live in a perfect world. But deep within us, we still long for perfection. We still long to be perfect. And when we can't reach that perfection, especially those of you who are rule keepers, and you find out, well, I can't be as perfect as I like to be. Uh, you know, I, I put this perfect Christmas dinner together, but it just didn't work out like I thought it would. Because we so long for perfection, but we can't have perfection, that's why we're constantly working on our cars and our homes and our bodies and our bank accounts and on our spouses and our kids because it just never works in this world that has gone wrong. But we still long for it. And so, if we can't be perfect, we'll settle for new. You know, when I was growing up, there were repair shops everywhere. People repaired things. They didn't just throw them out. 
Like people would repair their toasters for 20 years. Now when something breaks, we just throw it out. We just discard it. Yeah, that's it. Throw it out. Get new. We do that with spouses, right? Yeah, you're no longer working for me. Eh, yeah, you're gone. I, I get somebody new. Listen, the Holy Spirit does new that results in perfect. The Holy Spirit does new that results in perfect. You have become a new creation in Christ. The old is what? Gone. You're a new creation in Christ. And so he is marching you towards perfection. Watch. But you will not reach perfection until you get to heaven. You can make progress, but you can't be perfect. So if you set up the standard, man, I'm going to be perfect, and I'm going to get it all right, all the time, every way, everything, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're made new but you're not made perfect yet. But when the Holy Spirit gets done with you, one day, you will have newness. You'll have perfection. Now, in the meantime, here are seven elements of our newness. And I'm just going to rattle through these because I only got a few minutes. A new relationship with God, right? When you're in a relationship with Christ, you have a brand new relationship with God. You're now not hostile towards God. You're not an enemy of God. You're a child of God. You're in this new relationship. You also have a new mind, right? The mind... You have a mind that can either think on the flesh or you have a mind that thinks on the spirit. Your mind is what shapes your lifestyle and your character. We're going to teach you how to have the mind of Christ, to think like the spirit thinks. You have a new nature, flesh versus the spirit. Flesh is you without God, spirit is you with God. You have this new nature. That's why a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. So, he takes out our old nature and he replaces it with the Holy Spirit who begins this process of perfection that you're not reached till you get to heaven, but you're in progress of getting there. So your life becomes different. It becomes new. Your nature has changed. New desires is another one. You are hostile to God. He says, now you submit to God's laws. Listen, I don't pray. I don't give. I don't come to church. I don't worship because I feel like that's what God expects of me, because I feel like God will love me more, that God will bless me in greater ways. I come simply because I have new desires that have been given to me through the Holy Spirit. Not out of fear, out of love. New power. First you couldn't submit to God, now the Spirit of God dwells in you. You have a new life, couldn't please God, now you live a life of righteousness. Doesn't mean you get it right all the time, but you're working on it, right? New destiny, death versus life. The good news is if you receive Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will also be rise, raise you from the, the dead. Now, let me just say this before we move on. When dealing with sin, we tend to evaluate sin by the bad, the, how bad the effects are. Well, you know what I'm doing is not that bad. It's not really going to hurt anybody. Uh, the effects of it are just minimal. What if, what if the effects of your sin is that the fact that when you sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit? And if you grieve the Holy Spirit long enough, you will quench, you will put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in your life, who is what? Your power source. 
So if I choose the pathway of condemnation, I'm always down on myself, and then I get down on God, and I get down on everything, and I get down on life, and I'm grieving the Holy Spirit of God who's put all these new things inside of me, and I'm losing the power source. I'm not really exercising his authority in my life as opposed to if I'm keeping my mind focused on the things of the Spirit, and I look through this list every day, and I say, you know what? Man, Jesus died for me, therefore I am justified. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me, therefore I'm sanctified. And all these new things he's trying to implement in my life, and I just see my life beginning to change day after day after. It might not be huge changes, it might be very small changes, but small installments over a long period of time yields great results. All right? So there's a whole different mindset here. Because I want the fruit of the Spirit produced in my life. And fruit comes out of fellowship. So rather than grieving the Spirit, so what is the Spirit going to do? He's going to convict me. Why is he convicting me? So, but first John said, if I confess my sin, own up to it, be honest about it. He's faithful and righteous to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. When did Jesus forgive me and cleanse me? At the cross of Calvary. Why am I doing that now? It's about fellowship. It's not about relationship any longer. I want to be in fellowship with the Spirit. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. I want to make sure that my life is in tune with Him and I'm walking with Him to the best of my ability so that I allow the authority of the Spirit being exercised over my life so that now I begin to see freedom in areas and offloading of backpack stuff that I've never seen before. Make sense? Here's the last one. Uh, we'll, we'll jump ahead here. Well, what does God the Father say to us? He says, God lives with me, therefore I am glorified. Now look at these three things. Jesus died for me, I'm justified, takes care of your past. Holy Spirit indwells me, therefore I'm sanctified, takes care of your present. The Father lives with me, and I will one day be glorified, takes care of my future. Past, present, and future has all been taken care of through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the implementation of the entire trinity of God himself. So here's what God says in the remaining verses that, that we look at. He says, number one, this relationship with God the Father, practically every day I am, I am led by God, right? What did he say? He says, because in verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit are of God and they're sons of God, right? So God's giving you the Holy Spirit to lead you, to guide you, to direct you so that you can hear him and you can sense him and he can empower you and you can walk with him so that you allow him to do the work in you that in the unmistakable evidence of that leading and that work is that you begin to display the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, you know, goodness, kindness, gentle, self-control, all of those things that are evidence of the Spirit in me. Number two is fearless intimacy with God. Fearless intimacy. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, right? You're a son. You're a daughter of God. He's Abba. He's your father. And do not equate God your father with your earthly father. Your earthly father was not perfect. There's no earthly father who is perfect, but God your heavenly father is. And he loves you passionately. Number three is the assurance of belonging to him. In verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. We are validated by God that we are his children. And then lastly, there's the continual reminder of our value before God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his, his glory. Now, listen, 
Children in Jesus' day and time in the Roman Empire had no rights. None. They were at the whim of their fathers. The fathers, like they superseded law. So if you wanted a, a boy to help on the farm, but you found out you had a girl, you can dispose of her. Or if you have a son who's some, in some way, shape, or form deformed, you can dispose of him. The law will not arrest you. The law will not condemn you. And so children oftentimes were sat out by the curbside or by a, a trash heap and where they were scared and anxious and lonely and powerless because they had been rejected and abandoned and discarded. Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? When we're carrying our woundedness and the evil one's heaping self-condemnation on us. I feel so abandoned. I feel so discarded. I feel so anxious. I feel so rejected. But then your heavenly father comes along and you hear his footsteps behind you and he gets on his knees and he grabs your face and he looks at you eyeball to eyeball and says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are my child. I'm your father. I will walk with you. I will protect you. I will, I will shelter you. I have an inheritance for you. An inheritance that's going to absolutely blow your mind. Now trust me. So every day, if you want to offload that backpack, if you want to see change happen in your life, you want to see freedom, you preach the gospel to yourself. You remind yourself, hey, no condemnation here. I don't know what you're talking about, Satan. Not here. Not happening. I've got the Holy Spirit indwelling me. I've got a power source. Whew. You don't stand a chance against this power source. You just need to learn how to leverage it. I've got a Heavenly Father who will never, ever let me go but who will always, always gather me up in his arms and hold me to his chest so that I can hear the heartbeat of the one who orchestrated this entire plan and process of Jesus coming into the world and offering himself up as our ultimate sacrifice. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you um, for the truth of your word. And Lord, sometimes you know it's hard for us to accept and to adapt the truth because our feelings are screaming something else. And those feelings are rooted in experiences, and some of which are very painful and very bitter. And so, Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit today God, that you will override those feelings, you'll override those emotions, and you will, you, you, through your Holy Spirit, will tune into our minds this morning to say, no, this is truth. This is what I say about you. It doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. This is what I say about you. Hold on to truth. Help us to learn, oh, Father, how to assimilate the truth the authority of the Spirit of God in our lives.
I pray for those who are still carrying their backpack, who are still wallowing in their woundedness. Lord, we live in a victim mentality kind of culture right now. And Lord, there's no confidence there. People may come and they may console us, but there's no confidence in that victim mentality. And we, we know the evil one wants us to have a victim mentality as though we are inept and unable to change anything that has happened to us in the past or was happening to us in the present or what may happen in the future. But Father, we just, we just declared this morning that is a lie from the enemy and we will not believe that lie. That you came for so much more than that. And so I pray, Lord, for those who need to reach out and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior to experience your justification personally in their lives. May they pray and open up their hearts and lives to you this morning, O Christ, and ask you to forgive and to come into their lives to be Savior and Lord of their life. I pray for the church of Jesus Christ, Father, that what I just believe, Father, one of the reasons we are so uh, unable to share our faith and so unwilling to engage in outreach and missions is because we're just all over the map in this relationship we have with you. God, I pray that you will settle that issue in the hearts and the lives of those who are struggling here today and those who are watching online. I I pray, Lord, that as we continue to put the pieces of the puzzle together, that your Holy Spirit will just empower us beyond our human limitations to live out the life that Jesus secured for us. And Heavenly Father, we know that even when this body ceases to function, that you're not finished with it yet. You're going to raise it up. You're going to make it new and, and, and perfect and reunite it with our soul and spirit, and you will have completed the process of our perfection in Christ, and God, what a glorious day that will be, that your inheritance has become our inheritance. So we thank you for that security that we have in Christ as you have sealed us under the day of redemption through your Holy Spirit. Now may we as your people rise up this morning and sing to you like we've never sung before because of what Christ has done for each of us. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand. Amen.